Today we are leaning into our series on the Sermon on the Mount once again, and we are in the second beatitude, which is this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here's what you have to know about the Beatitudes. Is the Beatitudes are not some type of string of proverbial statements that are disjointed from one another. What you notice about the Beatitudes is that they are actually all connected like a chain. And that the first link in the chain is an impoverished spirit. Jesus says these are those that are blessed. And then an impoverished spirit leads to a mourning spirit because it sees ourselves as who we actually are before the face of God, which leads to a meek strength, which leads to a hunger and a thirst for Christ's righteousness. And then you see, so all of those are kind of the, 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 the footings of the foundation of the, the kingdom ambassador. And then from this, you see, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those that want to go out and live as God's people in the world. You see, they are all linked together. And it's this beautiful thing. So as we look at blessed are those who mourn today, I was thinking about this idea of mourning and how it's, it's not something that we typically look for. Megan and I love to listen to live music, love to listen to any music, lots of different genres of music, but my, I would say probably my favorite genre of music is singer-songwriter kind of stuff. Uh, the stuff that's like so raw that you can feel it, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, in fact, Megan, Megan kind of makes fun of me sometimes. She made a playlist on Spotify called Ryan's Sad Songs. Because she said, you know, your songs are always so sad. I was like, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I like sad music. There's just something that I can feel from the artist. And what I notice about these artists is typically their best music is produced out of their deepest pain. It's not, it's not produced out of the happy, clappy moments of life, but it's the deep pain that you really want to avoid, but you choose to lean into, and you see that God blesses it. When I, when I think about this idea of mourning, I think about Jesus. You know, here, here's what Isaiah 53 says about Jesus. It prophesies about Jesus that He was a man of sorrows acquainted with much grief. You know, I, I think that Jesus probably did cut up and laugh with His disciples. But we never have it recorded in the Scriptures. But we do have things recorded like Jesus weeping when He comes up on the fact that, that, that Lazarus has died and He waits a couple days before He raises him from the dead. Now we know that He's not weeping in, in the way that, that we would typically grieve or mourn a death because He's going to raise him from the dead. He's weeping for what sin leads to. As Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. He's weeping because of the reality that sin has ushered death into the world and it will require the payment of His perfect blood to restore us to fellowship with our Father in heaven. Jesus weeps over a community when He comes up in Luke 19 over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps at the fact that they will reject His provision for their sins. He weeps. John Stott says it like this, there are such things as Christian tears and very few of us will ever weep them. It's a sobering thought. 
It's a sobering thought as we look at this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. While it has some tertiary effects of how we grieve and mourn the loss of loved ones or the loss of anything in life, what it's talking about more than anything is grieving the loss of our innocence and our sin. There is something that is profound as a gift for you and I when we learn to grieve that. I mean, think about this. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And a lot of times, Christians like to use that verse by saying like, as almost like a license to sin. You know, grace always overcomes sin. Here's the thing, the realization of grace is inextricably linked to your realization of sin. They're linked. So, if, if you see yourself as someone that sin is abounding in, and all of us have fallen, and sin is abounding in us, now God is redeeming us, but when we see ourselves as, as those that sin has abounded in, we, we give ourselves permission to be those that grace can abound in. Jesus says they're connected. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I, I got some wisdom from a good friend of mine a few years ago. Uh, and it was this. Whenever there's conflict, tension, or pain, lean into it instead of run away from it. And this could be the best thing you get all day. Because everything in us wants to run away from pain. We are conditioned as a society to run away from pain with everything inside of us. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who lean into the sorrow of their sin. Because the kingdom is being birthed inside of us when we see ourselves as empty so that we can be filled by the Holy Spirit. So what we're looking at today is this, this question. How does mourning sin lead to comfort? The two seem to be disconnected when we think about it. I mean, how can me being sorrowful over the things that I've done in life lead to comfort? How can that happen? And it only happens when Jesus is in the equation. So what I want to look at is this. Is three movements of the morning soul. Three movements of the morning soul. And they are this. I'll just go ahead and show you my cards. Contrast, contrition, and comfort. This is what it looks like to mourn as those that have hope. So let's look at contrast. John Calvin says in his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of those two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Now, typically we'll look at this and we'll say, okay, I just got to discover myself and learn how to live out of myself. And while that is true, what John Calvin is writing about is the fact that when you look inside of yourself, you will see yourself as an utterly and totally depraved individual. And that is a really, really, really good place to be. That's what he's saying. It's a really good place to be. I mean, to think that, our, that, that comfort could come from the fact that our depravity actually haunts us. When we think about the things that we have done or could have done or thought about, that that is the foundation of being blessed by God. Because we see that we can't save ourselves. So we need an honest assessment. So I want to, I want to throw a chart up here on the screen for you that has been incredibly useful for the saints here at New City Church. 
And we just simply call this the cross chart. And, and, and this was developed by a guy named Richard Lovelace uh, and then later used by some other guys. But basically the chart works like this. As time goes on, there becomes a season in your life where, Lord willing, you are converted and you come to faith in Jesus. Now the typical, the typical thinking of the Christian when they become a believer is this. That now uh, I, I, I'm done with sin and now I'm just going to go and I'm going to follow Jesus and it's all going to be you know, apple pie and cake, right? It's just going to be good to go. But what we see as we come to follow Jesus is there's this tension. And the tension is this, is that we know more of God's Word, know more of God's character, more of God's heart, and we see more of His holiness than we've ever seen before. We see more of it. When you follow Jesus, that's the normal trajectory. The other piece of this puzzle is this, is you see more of your sinfulness. This is what Calvin was talking about. And so, what do you do with the gap? What do you do with the gap between God's holiness and your sinfulness? Well, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll try to lower the bar of God's holiness. Well, you know, God, he, He's not really that holy. He doesn't really care about that. I mean, He probably had a little bit of sin in His life. I mean, Jesus was flipping over. To, I mean, he, he did these things. He wasn't that holy. He's not that distinct from us. Well, the other side of it is we'll raise the bar of our sinfulness and we'll say, you know, no one else knew about the sin. I mean, I just thought it. I mean, it just, it just went like that. I mean, no one else knows who I really am. I don't appear to be as bad as person XYZ. And so we'll try to raise the bar. And what we do in the middle of this is we shrink the work of the cross in our hearts. We shrink it. We minimize who Jesus is to us. We minimize the fact that God had to murder His Son so that we could be saved from ourselves. We minimize it. And so the normal trajectory is this contrast. This contrast that God is way more holy than we even know. And then we are way more sinful than we're even aware of. And the, the mark of the mature Christian is these contrasts grow as you walk with Jesus. The temptation is to shrink that cross. The space in between God's holiness and your sinfulness is the space of mourning. That is our response as we see the distance. We don't have to pretend that we're better than we are. We don't have to perform and make up for the lost ground of our sin. We just simply have to be in Christ and mourn the fact that God had to send His Son for us. And that somehow in us miraculously produces great hope because we don't mourn as those without hope. We mourn as those that have great and wonderful hope. So as we, as we kind of transition more into the this, this second movement of mourning, what I want you to know is this, is that mourning is the soul's release valve to see ourselves as we are so that we can see God as He is. For, for grace to abound in us, sin must abound in us. For us to make much of God's grace, we have to make much of our sin. This is one of Ryan's sad songs, right? This is on the playlist. That's okay. You know, in the Bible, what do you see? You see Jeremiah. Do you know what Jeremiah was known as? The weeping prophet. The weeping prophet. The Psalms are the saddest songs. I mean, they probably wouldn't even make my sad song playlist. They're so sad. You know what I mean? 
And then you have Jesus, who is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We have the book of Lamentations. There is something in this for us, church. So let's move to the next point. The second movement of mourning is contrition. This isn't a word that we use much anymore. Contrition. So, what, what we are tempted to do is to short-circuit the process of grief and mourning over our sin. And, and, and when we short-circuit it and we jump straight to forgiveness, which we have in Jesus, we have forgiveness. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you to wallow in shame and guilt. But mourning leads us to this place where Jesus can transform us. Because we are finished with the flesh when we are mourning over sin. When we jump past it too quick, it's like the, it's like the kid that experiences consequences and you know, maybe the parent asks, you know, are, are you sorry that you got caught or are you sorry that you did it? I mean, we ask those questions and when you sit in it, it teaches you something because the Holy Spirit is known as the Comforter. He comes alongside of us as the paraclete. And He comforts us and He teaches us and He changes us. He transforms us by His grace. Listen to where the heart of God is drawn to from Isaiah 57.15. For thus says the One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. There's not much new news there for us. We know that God is high and He's holy. But listen to where the heart of God is also drawn to. And also, with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus is drawn to the contrite heart. Think about the people that Jesus pursued. They were people that were miserably broken over what they had gotten themselves into. Time and time again. I mean, Jesus lets an adulterous woman interrupt a perfectly good dinner uh, with the finest of foods and wines with the Pharisees because of the contrite spirit that this woman had over her sin. He's the only way. I've got to make a way to him. Think about the fact that Jesus lets some guys lower their friend by taking off a roof in Mark 2 down to him he lets them interrupt that party because of the contrite spirit and heart that they have. Confession, confession is an action, but contrition is a posture. Confession's an action, but contrition is a posture. Contrition doesn't leave you. It, it's, it's, this, it's this place that you get to where you, where you let yourself be grieved by the sinful condition of not only your own self, but the sin of others and the sin of the world. And if we want to be made like Jesus, we are called to live like Jesus, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I, there are times that I am tempted to skip straight past the morning and straight to the forgiveness. Take me straight to the forgiveness. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that that temptation is what he calls cheap grace. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a man that had nothing to lose and everything to gain. You know why? He was a pastor, he was an author, he was a martyr for his faith. And this is what this man, full of courage, wrote about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness 
without the requiring of repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's what cheap grace is. And everything in us is drawn to cheap grace. But cheap grace doesn't change us. It doesn't change us. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Costly grace on the other side of the spectrum is those that pick up the posture of mourning over their sin. And and we realize as, as those that follow Jesus or those that are on their way to following Jesus, that there is such a thing as the benefits of the kingdom that are already present to us. We are forgiven of our sin. His kingdom is in our midst. We are filled with grace and love and truth. He is changing us. But then there's this other side of the spectrum where we see things like Charlottesville, Virginia yesterday. And we, we see all of this brokenness. I mean, if you read the Atlanta Journal-Constitutional, you see it all over Gwinnett County. This brokenness all around us. And a part of us longs, longs for Jesus to come and right every wrong and wipe every tear for now and forevermore. We long, so we're caught in between the, the already of Jesus coming and saving us and the not yet of what He will do in and through us and when there will be no more sorrow. But until then, church, we mourn. And sometimes the mourning is a little heavier than others, and sometimes it's individual, and sometimes it's, it's collective. We are the only ones in the world, guys, that know how to mourn well. Because we mourn as those that know Jesus is coming. Nobody else has that hope. We're the only ones that get that benefit. A couple of examples of what it looks like to have a contrite heart. I think about David. What did David do? David, David sinned tremendously against uh, his country as the king, against his military officers, against an innocent woman, and against his own family when he had an affair with one of his soldiers' wife. And he was so caught up in the cycle and the tapestry of sin that he had the man murdered so that he could cover it up. And immediately, his response comes from uh, Psalm 51. What do we see are the effects of a contrite heart? Just, just quickly here. There's an ownership of sin. Listen to what he says in Psalm 51, 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Listen to this. Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So there's an ownership of sin. The one that mourns over sin owns it. We're not blame shifting this stuff anymore. We're saying, this is me. I did this. And we go straight to the offended party and we say, look at what I did. And you know, some of the most beautiful relationships that I have in life are people that I've sinned against deeply. You know why? Because we've had to forgive one another. So you lean into the conflict. Secondly, there's this confidence of forgiveness that David has. Because David knows God's character, he knows that he'll forgive him. He know, listen to uh, verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 51. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You see that it's, it's God's grace that breaks us over sin. If you, are, if you ever mourn over your sin, it's because Jesus has given you the grace to be able to do that. 
He's hit the brakes of your life. He's, put, he's applied them. You're screeching your tires to a halt and you're realizing that this impacts my life differently than it used to. That is a great grace in your life if God is doing that in and through you now. There's also this, lastly, this desperation, not this entitlement. So he says this in verse 11 of Psalm 51. Cast me not away from Your presence and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Like God, You could take Your Holy Spirit away from me. You could take Your presence away from me. And, and I understand that, God. You could do it every time that I break Your law. Please don't do that. There's this desperation. And the second character I want to look at, I just want to make one point with him, is the Apostle Paul. We see all these same themes in Paul's life, but we also see another one. And it comes from Romans 7. I'm going to read four verses to you from Romans 7, verses 21-25. through 25. I want you to listen to the struggle of sin and the struggle of mourning over sin that Paul explains here. And what we, what we see from this is that a contrite spirit and a mourning heart uh, are not just undergraduate courses in your Christian journey. They're graduate level and they keep going. Listen to what he says in Romans 7. So I find it to be a law whenever I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Listen to his response. Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who could possibly deliver me from this inner turmoil? Then he goes to the Gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What is he saying right here? There's this battle within each and every one of us. And it's the battle of the flesh and the Spirit. And and, and, and you're tempted to think, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time now. I should be over this. And so, so what we begin to do when we have those types of expectations, church, is we begin to pretend and isolate ourselves and hide. Don't we? We say, I shouldn't be dealing with this struggle once again. I shouldn't be saying those things. I shouldn't be looking at those things. I, mean, I thought I already dealt with this, God. And so we isolate. Paul says, listen, it's a continual struggle. You're never going to experience freedom completely until Jesus Christ returns. And the better that we can get at being exposed in a community of those who mourn over sin and seek the comfort of Christ, the more healthy we're going to walk in Jesus. This is what God wants to do in us. Lastly, we look at the comfort that Jesus brings. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's those that get the comfort. Because everyone mourns, but not everyone is blessed because of their mourning. Have you noticed that? Not everyone's blessed. It's only those that mourn over the right things that are transformed by the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus on our behalf, making us into His image. To talk about real comfort, we have to do the thing where we talk about what it's not first. So we're going to talk about false comfort first. Um, Job, if anybody knew about false comfort, it was Job. Job's buddies, right? I mean, we've all got a few of Job's friends too, right? I mean, I mean, we do. Job says to his friends that are trying to comfort him after he has lost everything, 
He's lost everything. His family, his land, anything that he could possibly put his hope in except for God, he's lost. Job doesn't have the ability to be an idolater an idolater in anything other than himself. And so, here's what Job says, How then will you comfort me with empty things? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. There's a doctor um, that's a missionary. His name is Dr. Paul Brand. And he is a, he's a pioneering orthopedic surgeon who became a missionary. And, and, and his, his area of expertise is that he uh, helps treat cases of leprosy all around the world. And do you know what he, here's what he, here's what he says about people that suffer with leprosy. If I had one gift that I could give to people with leprosy, it would be the gift of pain. See, doctors once believed that the disease of leprosy was what caused the ulcers in the hands, on the hands and face that eventually lead to the decay of limbs and flesh. But what Dr. Brand has discovered is that in 99% of leprosy cases, what caused the decay of the body was numbness to pain. It was numbness to pain. So the, 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 the deteriorating limbs and the decay of the body is a symptom of a numbness to pain. So, so what he's saying is this, is that, that for, the, for the leper, pain is a really good thing to have. Because you won't destroy yourself. Pain is the gift of grace that leads us to long for the right home, church. Sorrow and mourning is the, the gift of grace that leads us to long for the right things in life. He says this in his book, talking just about the context of the United States. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated before. But they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Church, here's the application for us. The blessed life, blessed are those who mourn, the blessed life is the life that feels the pain of sin and responds to it. It is a curse to not feel the pain of sin and respond to it. It feels better in the moment because we don't have to enter into the deep darkness of our soul, but it leads us to hell. If I'm, if I'm shooting us straight, that's where it leads us. The pain of sin is a gift. It's not something to be avoided. It's not something to be distorted. It's not something to be made light of. It's a gift to us. In the, in, in the narrative that we've crafted though, we think that pain can't equal comfort. But in the narrative that our community, our society has created, we've left Jesus out of the equation. Jesus is the one that brings the comfort for our souls. I want to talk about real comfort now. Uh, this week, uh, I had received news of a tremendous tragedy from one of my, my best friend, his brother-in-law, 31 years old, died of cancer this week. He's been married four years. He's my, I'm 31. He's my age. He's been diagnosed for nine months. And he called me, and it was we have such a relationship where it's like we just kind of sat silent for about two minutes, 
because I knew why I called. And uh, I just I, t- I told him, I said, Andrew, I got nothing. I have nothing to offer you except the comfort of Jesus. You know what you realize in those moments? Because you, you, you get into these places where you enter into people's pain and loss of sin because of sin. And you want to do something, but you can do nothing. And that is the reality for all of us. We have nothing to offer except the comfort of Jesus Christ. And this is the best news we could ever have because... You know where we say, I wish there was something that I could do, and so we, we try to we try to kind of get together a few tangibles. And sometimes that's in good faith, and other times it's because we feel guilty that we can't do anything. But what God is able to do is He's actually able to offer real comfort. Did you know that? Like real, tangible comfort that you can't offer. He's actually able to do that. So when we sit with people who mourn over sin and we give them Jesus, it's not a cop-out to say that I'm praying for you. We're actually petitioning the One that can actually bring comfort, real tangible comfort to our lives. But we've got to enter in and sit in the awkward silence knowing that we serve a sovereign God that we sometimes cannot figure out. So we trust His character. A.W. Tozer says this, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until He has hurt him deeply. You see, God has to come in and kind of twist the knife of our flesh until we get to a place where we are so pained over it that we'll seek Him. And when we seek Him, we find more comfort than we could ever find anywhere else. So to, to, to kind of summarize everything that we're, we've said today, I just want to offer a few a few thoughts here. What does, what does mourning over sin do and what does it look like? If you're interested, you could read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and these would all be themes in there. We don't have time this morning though. It grows us in a deep communion with Jesus. We get to participate in the fellowship of His sufferings because the greatest suffering that Jesus ever went through was because of our sin. So whenever we suffer over sin, whether it be our sin or someone else's, we are entering into the fellowship of His sufferings, which is the the thickest fellowship you could ever experience. That has real comfort, even though it looks terrible from the circumstantial standpoint. The second thing is this, is that it grows a deep community with other people. As C.S. Lewis once said about friendship. He said, friendship begins at the moment when you look at someone else and you say, what, you too? That's what we do in pain. That's what we do in sorrow. That's what we do in grief. The only thing that matters when you're with someone who is grieving over sin is the fact that you're there and you're grieving too. That's the only thing that matters. And the Holy Spirit does more in those moments than in any eloquent speech or card the text that you could send is the presence of you being with someone in the suffering. As, as Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We have a responsibility to weep with those who are mourning over their sin. And yesterday, I was 
uh, reading the news on my phone late in the afternoon, and I, I saw a picture. It was actually in the paper this morning. By the way, this is one example of what it looks like to collectively mourn over sin. There are many others. Okay, This is one. It's this car that is driving through a protest. And a guy that's upside down on top of the car because he's just been hit by the car. And I'm sitting there, and my seven-year-old daughter comes up and she says, Daddy, what are you looking at? And she sees this picture. She goes, oh, what is that? You know what I was tempted to do? I was tempted to protect her from it. I said, no, 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 you don't need to see. You don't need to see this. But instead, maybe it was the Spirit. I just, I just said, I just talked to her and we flipped through the pictures. And you know, I'm, I'm like weeping. And my daughter is there. She's kind of confused. And we're, she's, she's saying, why would someone do this to another person? Over skin pigment? Are we serious? Is this what's happening? And we're, we're, we're talking about it. The fact that this much hatred could exist between image bearers of God because God has uniquely designed them to appear differently. It's, a, it's an egregious sin. And we have, a benef- we have the benefit of being a part of a community that wants to pursue this together. And we have the benefit of being a new church that says we're going we're gonna to make this a big deal. We're going to always put it in front of us. This is not some social gospel experiment. This is an assault on image bearers of God. And we stand for it in any way. Whether it's taking the life of an unborn person or whether it's Something like racism. We're going to stand for it. And when we don't have answers, we'll grieve and we'll mourn together. And we'll enter into the pain because we think that the pain is actually a gift. Henry Nowen says this, by inviting God into our difficulties, we ground life, even at sad moments, in joy and hope. When we stop grasping, our lives can finally be given more than we could ever grasp for ourselves. Jesus meets us in the middle of it. And this church is what it means to be blessed. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we come to You today and uh, when we sing one of Your sad songs today because we need to feel the weight that Your Son Jesus had to feel for us so that we can know the gravity of the grace that You have for us. And so Father, we pray that You'd comfort us today whether no matter what the sin is that we're grieving, we pray that we would, we would mourn well, that we'd enter in, and that we would see that grieving together in community gives us a stronger bond than any common interest we could have. Anything else. And so, Jesus, we seek to be blessed this morning by You. We seek to be blessed in our mourning because of Your goodness and the hope that we have in Jesus. And it's His name we pray. Amen.